Please turn with me again to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Today we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17 in chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week, as we covered verses 3 through 11 in this first chapter, we saw how quickly Paul started dealing with his critics in Corinth, people who were trying to undermine him and his ministry, especially in their attempts to claim that all of Paul's traveling, travails, and suffering just proved that he was not really a true apostle. We see similar attempts today when some people imply that the suffering or catastrophes of Christians just means they're not really living by faith or that their faith is just really weak. And in Paul's case, they were saying something like a true apostle of Christ would or should always demonstrate the power and authority of Christ himself. Victory always, and victory defined like the world defines it. Well, right from the get-go, Paul wrote a beautiful and powerful description as we saw last week, about how suffering actually made a believer in Christ more and more dependent upon Christ, which then highlights what? That highlights Christ's strength and not our own. He also used that truth to emphasize how the body of Christ is able to comfort one another in those difficult times by relating each other's stories of God's faithfulness in their trials. Paul has much more to say about this matter later in the letter, but he's got a couple of other things he needs to get out right now at the beginning. As we begin our passage today, we see another big part of the criticism against Paul. The critics were claiming that Paul was not being completely truthful with them. And as we begin to see how Paul responds to this, it's important to first recognize how God speaks to the issue of what a Christian should do about criticism. Everyone in here has been the subject of criticism to some degree. Now, many times criticism is warranted, and a Christian must learn to humbly accept it and learn and grow from it, which is really hard. But this process must happen. The attitude of knowing how often we fail and are blind and how often we misunderstand should keep us humble before the Lord and other people and also opens up more and more of our heart to actually wanting to be critiqued because we know we need input from others. Now, other times, we must simply commit the whole situation to the Lord and get on with the work He's called us to do, not living in the fear of man. Because it may obviously be coming from someone's desire to hurt and make themselves look better or to gain some kind of advantage. And once again, if our pride has been hurt, and we become resentful or evasive and want to strike back, we'll end up taking back 
what we had just committed to the Lord and becoming bitter ourselves, not able to go on with any humility at all. Now, in Paul's case, these criticisms were more like attacks on his character and calling. In fact, the crux of the matter was whether he dealt with them in truthfulness, whether he dealt with the Corinthians in truthfulness. In this case, it is right and it is necessary to offer a defense if we are in the position to do so. So how can we distinguish what kind of situation this really is? How do you distinguish these criticism issues from one another? Well, the answer actually seems simple, but it makes us evaluate something that's going on in the deeper most parts of our hearts. What matters is how our testimony for Christ is affected. And this is the only thing that really matters. And if that's true, we'll be able to stand when we know he wants us to. And we'll also be able to humble ourselves if we realized once again we blew it. So why in God's plan are we Christians still on this earth? Why didn't he just arrange for us once we believed to go directly into his presence forever? That too is an easy question, but it does get us to examine the heart of the matter. Isn't the main purpose of still being here to bear witness to Christ as he prepares us for eternity? Yes, it is. A noted English seminary prof put it this way. It's often necessary for us to defend ourselves when the issue is truthfulness. Whether formally as preachers or informally as those who seek to witness for Christ in daily life, Christians are communicators of the word of God. So it is important we do not have a reputation for the misuse of words. This was the situation in which Paul was involved. And it's significant that he deals with this issue, this issue at the beginning of this letter. He must have realized that the acceptance of what he was to say later in the letter was to a large extent dependent on clearing away this misunderstanding, first of all. In our text, we see that Paul is actually being criticized for, the, for being untruthful in several ways. Paul was accused of acting deviously and insincerely towards the Corinthians and of writing letters that were shrewd and, in, and evasive. In other words, writing one thing but meaning something else. Their evidence for these accusations and criticisms included the way Paul seemed to be vacillating in his travel plans about coming to see them. Does that sound weird? Point to bring this home. 
How many of you even recently have had to change plans, especially seeing people close to you, like your family? And no matter how much you try to explain, it just doesn't compute. And people are taking offense. But you knew that there were circumstances that just couldn't stay the same, that you had to change some things. Well, in our text, we see here that this is what's going on. If you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the, in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe see it. Now, one way to outline the section that our text is in today is to see Paul's defense from his conscience and then about his plans and then see the defense of his integrity, which we'll get to next week. So today we're going to look at his defense from his conscience in verses 12 through 14, and then about his plans in verses 15 and 17. So first, Paul's defense from his conscience. Paul uses two words here in verse 12 that we see repeatedly throughout this letter, boast and conscience. The verb boast occurs 29 times in 1st and 2nd Corinthians and 38 times in the whole New Testament and only twice by someone besides Paul, and that was James. This is obviously not used by Paul in this passage as a display of arrogance, boasting as a display of arrogance. That's not how Paul is using it. Instead, he uses boast and puts a particular nuance on it in this letter. What he's saying is that he can look his accusers in the eye and boast or declare that their charges against him are false because the way he has been treating them is no different from the way that he's always treated them, with love care, and open honesty and integrity. So normally, 
And this might be hard for us to do, but we need to do it. We think of boasting in only one particular way. And that is a picture of a self-justifying, self-centered person. But here, Paul attributes his personal integrity to God's grace working in his life. And that's what he's boasting about, that God has worked in his life. In other words, Paul's boast is simply him declaring that any godly quality that he has is only there because of God's gracious initiative in him. So there is absolutely nothing even close to self-centeredness in Paul's boast. Now, if we get that, we can keep going. If we don't get that, nothing after this will make any sense. So what is Paul boasting about or declaring? That the testimony of his conscience has found him not guilty. This other well-used word here in verse 12, conscience, is used by Paul to describe the moral judgment we make on our conscious actions. It makes us ask if this or that action was right or wrong. We had a whole Sunday school series on this in a book about conscience. Paul's conscience was clear. This doesn't mean a conscience is infallible, but in Paul's case, the exposure of his conscience to God's truth was incredibly extensive. And he knew he had acted with integrity, no matter what others may have said about him. And then next in verse 12, Paul describes his relationships with the Corinthians, which is what his conscience has judged as being exemplary. He simply says that he behaved in the world, how? With simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. These characteristics seem similar to each other, but they do build one upon another. Again, showing what? Showing Paul's dependence upon the grace of God. This first word, simplicity, literally means something like singleness, a sharp single focus with no other motives hanging around on it. It's sincerity. It means mental honesty. It's the virtue of someone who is free from pretense and hypocrisy. Can I say one word and see if you can even put those words along with it? Politician. Our first reaction is full of pretense and almost always hypocritical to some degree. It's a rare bird if we find somebody who isn't and they stick out or should because these are godly qualities that God has wrought in the Apostle Paul. It's also used in this not self-seeking way within, to, to describe an open heart and being generous, which is how it's used in other places in this letter as well. 
And as we saw emphasized in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians were unhealthily enamored by earthly, worldly wisdom. That was one of their biggest problems. And it evidently still was a huge stumbling block for them. That means many Corinthians had practical outlooks about day-to-day life that mirrored worldly priorities. Like what? Like expediency and self-exaltation and materialism. And the list goes on and on and on. Worldly characteristics, things the world holds up as being worth seeking after. Not so for us. Paul's underlying emphasis is that someone saved by God's grace is given the Holy Spirit who starts shaping or reshaping completely our outlook on life in godly ways with a new way of thinking and a new outlook. Paul deals with another charge against him in the next two verses, in verses 13 and 14. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So, not only can the Corinthians look at Paul's conduct to see the charges against him are bogus, they can also just re-examine what he wrote already, all of his letters. They had them. He's basically saying, read them again. Read my letters again. And read the letters I wrote to the other churches that have been passed around between the churches already. And he's saying once they look closely at those letters again, they'll see that Paul has been perfectly honest and straightforward in every way. There are no veiled hints in those letters, which some people will pick up, that nobody else can see at all. He didn't word things with the purpose of making several interpretations possible. You know people who do that? Don't want to really say it, but they don't want to not say it. So they say something, and some people will say, oh, you're saying it? And then some people will say, no, you're not really saying it. Even their misunderstandings on some points had been cleared up. Paul wrote this second letter, and he wrote some more letters that we don't have that went to the Corinthians that he mentions. He'd been very careful to make these letters hit the point he was trying to make and be clear. So Paul's intentions in his letters have been clear. He knows his critics will not be able to substantiate their charges. But these people are like many of us. They're not going to go back and check the letters. They just like being in on some misinformation and getting under somebody's skin. But he knows. He knows that there's no charge that'll stand. Now, this clarity that Paul is writing about is a general characteristic of the Bible. It's one of those neat words that you have to look at until you get used to saying it. Perspicuity. 
the perspicuity of Scripture by the Protestant reformers gave that name. So that's, it's talking about clarity of Scripture. Now, this doesn't mean that everything in the Bible is easy to understand or that the richness that we see in much of Paul's thoughts and explanations are immediately understood. I mean, even Peter writes in his second letter, 2 Peter 3.16, that some of <clears throat> Paul's writings are hard to understand. But that's different from being clear as you get into it. This doesn't mean that the essential truths about God, about ourselves, and about the gospel are expressed without being clear. It means they are made clear with clarity and that when an inspired writer is communicating at a practical level, level it is never to confuse or deceive anybody. This should encourage us, should, hope you are. Of course the Bible contains deep truth, but there is always truth in its surface meaning as well, which means involved explanations of that surface meaning are not always necessary. You just get it, what's on top. There is a plainness about the Bible. It's not written just for professional theologians, but for ordinary Christians. If we fail to understand its plain statements, that may say more about us than the Bible. Because living faith simply takes God at his word and remains hungry for what God is saying and how to apply it. In verse 14, we see Paul's hope that once they had examined all the available evidence, they would come to their senses again, especially as they remembered how appreciative they were for his teaching when he was with them at the beginning. He founded this church as their missionary pastor, and he was there for over a year and a half. Notice also that there's some exhortation implied here for the Corinthians to walk now in the light of that coming day of the Lord Jesus. Did you catch that? The day of the Lord Jesus. They'll be able to boast about one another. And what did we say boasting was? Boasting of the work of God and the work he's done in each of our hearts by his grace. So that's really a very encouraging and I think a, a really, really positive sentence here. Paul's defense about his plans we see in verses 15 through 17. Now, when I read that a minute ago, just be honest with yourself, not going to ask anybody to raise your hand, but were you thinking, what in the world does this have to do with me? Now, this is one of the thorniest, craziest things in the New Testament to try to figure out. In fact, you can see some of how the differences come out just by looking at the maps sometimes between different versions of the Bible when they map out the missionary journeys. And sometimes you're going, well, wait a minute. 
we're studying Acts right now, and it looks like he went over here, but then there's nothing about this part, and then he shows up over here. Well, what's going on? Well, we're going to try to figure this out, okay? <clears throat> In other words, I tried to figure this out so long that you have to hear what finally came up. And if you're planning on going on an extended trip, most of you are not the kind of people that you just take off and you go, man, we'll sleep tonight wherever we end up. I wish I could be like that. But usually I drive Marty crazy with some kind of plan and five or six maps, even if we have GPS. <clears throat> so here we go. You can't get the whole thrust of Paul's response to these Corinthians and, their, and the critics amongst them if you miss this part. This is one of the major reasons that Paul wrote this letter. Because he wasn't able to keep the plans that he wrote to him about in the first one. And they were ticked. And his critics that were trying to undermine his ministry, you see, were using this, going, look at this. Apostle's supposed to know the will of God 24-7, and he couldn't even keep his word about when he was coming to see us. And that's what's going on here. He was being harshly criticized by some of the Corinthians because he changed his plans to come see them. And all of us need to realize that the Apostle Paul had to face real ministry problems like this, just like we do. Which means that we can learn a lot from the way Paul dealt with them. So if you look briefly at first, verse 17 first, go down a couple. We're going to start there just to read this. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Now, when we get through with this, and just it's not going to take that long, you're going to look back and you're going to know why he says yes, yes, and no, no. In other words, there's several sets of plans initially, and then he changes them, and so it's like yes, no, yes, or no. And then the next one's like no, yes, maybe not. Okay? So that's why he says it like this. It looks like he's vacillating. And notice the word vacillating and the phrase according to the flesh. And what most think, and this is probably true, is Paul's using the same expressions used by his critics against him. He says vacillating because that's what they're saying about him. He vacillates. And he's making decisions according to the flesh in a worldly manner. He's just doing this because he wants to do this. He's not thinking about us, okay? For vacillating, other, other translations say of two minds or doing it lightly, implying you, you haven't given it any thought at all, or being fickle. That all helps to understand. We all know what vacillating means. And then according to the flesh, other translations say in purely a human way or in a worldly manner. So Paul had outlined his travel plans in 1 Corinthians, and they included visiting the Corinthian church. That was in chapter 16 there at the end. But he had not felt he was able to keep those plans, thus their criticism and his need 
to explain. It's because he was trying to be honest and forthright that he wrote this. You see what I'm saying here? That's why this is in here, because he is trying to be straightforward. He wants them to know why he had to change his plans, which is dangerous. <laughs> and sometimes you just go, I can't explain it. Just take my word for it. Well, Paul explains it. In verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. So earlier in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 8, Paul had expressed his wishes, and we can call this plan A. He was going to travel from Ephesus, which he was at that point, through Macedonia and end up in Corinth. And then he'd hopefully head back to Jerusalem with that large gift that he was going to collect. Okay, now I'm going to try to do this so I'm not going backwards against you, okay? He was in Ephesus. He said he wanted to go up over the bridge to Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and then down to Corinth, and then hopefully, in the, by hopefully water, ship, with this huge gift to deliver to the Jerusalem church. Does that make sense? Now, in verse 15, he starts explaining how his plans changed after he wrote 1 Corinthians. And he says that Corinth then became first on his itinerary after leaving Ephesus, meaning that Paul then wanted to come to Corinth first from Ephesus. Verse 16, he explains more. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. So what's changed? In plan B, he goes, he wants to go from Ephesus straight across to Corinth, then up to Macedonia, and then back to Corinth, and then be sent to Jerusalem. He wanted to visit them twice. So those are the modifications. Paul now wanted to visit Corinth twice, before and after his activity in Macedonia. And his intention to get to Jerusalem with the collection was now pretty settled. I mean, it was settled in his mind. It's, it's time to get it and go. Visiting Corinth twice is why he says, so that you might have a second experience of grace. Got that? Some people take this verse completely out of context and see there's two big experiences of grace. Once when you become a Christian and then you get really filled later at some, some kind of experience. That's not what this is talking about at all. He's talking about when he gets to minister to them, it's grace for them to help Paul and it's grace from him, God through him to them that he gets to help them again. That's what he's talking about. So, in other words, Paul saw the opportunity for the Corinthians to help him twice on this trip, which would be two experiences of grace for them. That's how he looked at serving. How about that? Do we talk like that? When you guys help each other out, what you do often, do you realize that we could say, 
you got to experience the grace of giving people grace yourself. How beautiful is that? That's what he's saying. But then his plans changed again. COVID-19 hit the first century world. We're going through a lot of changes. We can identify with some of this in this regard. So what actually ended up happening is that in between the writing of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul felt he had to make what he calls a painful visit to Corinth. He found out some stuff that was so disturbing, he just said, I've got to go and it's not going to be, it's going to be hard. In fact, he talks about it in several places later that we'll see that that little visit when he went straight across to Ephesus and then straight back. I mean, he went from Ephesus to Corinth and then straight back. That it was painful and he was anguished in the deepest levels of his heart. So this was an out and back trip from Ephesus to Corinth and back to Ephesus. And he mentions that in the next chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Again, Look there quick, it's close to where you're looking. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. He may have made the painful visit when he writes 2 Corinthians, but he says, I made up my mind, I'm not going to go back yet and make another one of those. I want that to sink in because it was so painful. It's one of those deals that people have to have time to work through. So that actually ended up happening, that in between the writing of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he had to make this painful visit to Corinth. And Paul mentions this trip, as we said, and he writes, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit. And that's what kind of changed everything. So neither plan A nor plan B was carried out as planned. And he didn't make it back to Corinth after the painful visit before he wrote 2 Corinthians from Macedonia. He hadn't made it back after that painful visit. Instead, what actually happened had a little of both plans. And some of the Corinthians really got after Paul because of this. Yes, yes, and no, no. So what actually happened between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians Paul went from Ephesus to Corinth in that painful visit and then back to Ephesus. And then he had to leave Ephesus for Troas. There was a big riot in Ephesus. There was a lot of wild stuff going on there. And Troas is that city a little right up there at the bridge where you go from Asia over to, over to the northern part of Greece, which is actually Macedonia. And then... Macedonia where he wrote this letter. So that's what's happened since the first letter was written. So in verse 17 he says, uh, he says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? How would you vote? How would you have liked to try to explain all that? The Corinthian critics made the most of these changes to charge Paul with instability and being arbitrary and motivated by 
purely his self-interest with no concern for breaking promises or for the needs of the church in Corinth. In other words, it's a worldly man who makes impulsive moves like this. Spur of the moment, depending on his own personal whims. That's you, Paul. So Paul answers their charges with two questions of his own. By asking, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? What is Paul implying? He's, he implies that not everything in life is in our own hands. Because many times God uses circumstances that necessitate a change of plans. Sometimes big plans. Anybody noticed that in your own life recently? You notice he could have said a lot more than that. He could have said, the main reason my plans had to change was because you guys were acting like childish morons. And I had to go back and, and confront you again with the same issues I wrote the first time. And it was hard. And you treated me like dirt. And so I, ha I just came, I brought that to your attention again, and then I went back to Ephesus. Does he say it that way? No, he doesn't. He just gives them the facts of how God works and he's leaving it in his hands. Oh, I wish I could do that all the time. Do we, when our plans have to change and we don't get what we want and we can't go where we want, we can't even eat where we want or see people when we want, do we immediately say, that God is still on his throne and he wants us to go through some of this for a reason that we don't understand completely, but we know he does. See, that's the big point here. This is important to see that the apostles didn't just go, oh, thank you, God, for letting me take the gospel to all these places and I'll just sail. Thank you for giving me the best ship Thanks for never giving me a shipwreck. Thanks that I've never been arrested. Thanks that I've always been victorious. Thanks that I've always been to proclaim the gospel from the rooftops, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when in fact you read Paul's history, it's exactly the opposite most of the time. And always he sees God's hand in it. Doesn't mean he wasn't hurt. He wasn't disturbed that he'd never despaired for his life. We just read that comes up later in this letter. He explains it. The struggles of our hearts when things don't go like we thought they would. That's why this letter is so important. We get to see an apostle who went through exactly the same, same things, which is extremely, it should be extremely encouraging. It should not make us want to chunk the faith. People that sign up to be a Christian because they think everything's going to be hunky-dory the rest of their life. During all this, and maybe what's coming, who knows, what are they going to do? They're going to leave. Because God didn't behave the way 
They wanted him to. Folks, I'm counting on you being around. Because we get to let the love of Christ shine through us together, no matter what. If it calms down, praise his name. If it doesn't, praise his name. We're, we're here for a reason. And it's not just to be happy and get what we want. He follows up that question about vacillating with another question that makes this point even stronger. Do I make my plans according to the flesh or as the world does? Well, in, in Romans, when he wrote, wrote Romans chapter 8, verse 4, he says, In us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we need to intentionally think like this. Are we walking according to the Spirit or is how we walk based on our fleshly desires? Even if some of them are, are good and great. You see, no one can accuse Paul of making plans according to the flesh, which is why he has that incredible list of all the stuff he's gone through later because his dedication to the Lord was always so obvious and unselfish and the Corinthians let's be honest they should have known the responsibility for change in Paul's plans did not rest with him but they rested with God they should have known that and next week Lord willing we'll begin to see Again in verse 18 and following that Paul opens up his heart for us to see how deeply distressed he really was by these accusations and how he takes them all to Christ. So read that. Meditate on that before next week. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are King. We call you Lord because we bowed down before you and entrusted our lives to you. And, oh, Lord, we need to reexamine that commitment every day just to see if we've wandered off that path. Lord, we thank you that you have ordained to have things in our life that we would not choose, but that we can count on you using to make us more like you. And we can count on you using to become blessings for more people than we ever thought possible. Especially somebody or a group of people that may be hurting. And there wouldn't have been any other way for them to see you and hear about you. Other than if you put us in their sphere to help or provide or whatever the case may be. God help us grow and, and together grow in learning these what really are simple lessons, but they, they reach the deepest parts of our souls. Help us encourage one another because everybody in this room has had stuff already happen that has been discouraging, that has been limiting, and that has hurt. And we just pray for our confidence to be strengthened in your purposes for us 
and the grace that you provide us through Christ's work on the cross for us and the power of the Holy Spirit who you sent to live in each one of us who know you and who have been bought by the Redeemer. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand for our benediction. Feel free to talk through your mask if you want to say this together. For the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We mean that. Amen. You're dismissed.